I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. No, no, no! Oh, God, no! What, what was she wearing? I'm innocent. I'm Randy Page. Welcome to Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long story. At the end of episode one, we learned the prosecution's star witness, Jeff Dills, died before he could testify in Kimberly Long's murder trial. You know, there were actually two trials. The first one ended in a hung jury, but we're gonna be focusing on the second trial and the new jury that convicted her. In episode two, we'll experience Kimberly's murder trial. The prosecutor's case hung only on the timeline. Speak to her from inside prison. That's actually innocent. Discover powerful new evidence. What, what was she wearing? See what the judge who presided over her trial thinks about it. Based upon the evidence, she's probably innocent. And hear what jurors have to say. Based on the clothing, she couldn't have done it. Episode 2. The conviction. I had a day off work. It was a holiday. It was around November. Could have been around Veterans Day. Kimberly Long's mother, Darlene, is reliving the moment she learned about Jeff Dill's death. I'm sitting across from her at her kitchen table. She points to the nearby staircase and explains she was upstairs in bed and Kim was downstairs reading the newspaper. I heard a bloody scream. And I flew out of bed and I ran to the staircase and she was just screaming, Jeff Deals is dead, Jeff Deals is dead. And I'm going, oh, so here's another one. Here's another horrible thing to have to hear. My God, that we never expected. We say, I say it lots of times, why did he have to die? Frankly, that was my first reaction too. Why did Jeff Dills die? Was he murdered? Was someone trying to get him out of the way so he couldn't testify? Or was he hiding something about the identity of the killer or killers, something he might let slip under the pressure of testifying in a murder trial? Well, here's what happened. Jeff Dills was riding his motorcycle with a girlfriend on the back when he slammed into a garbage truck. It's unclear if it was his fault or the truck driver's fault, but it does appear it was simply a tragic accident. While Jeff Dills died, the girl riding with him survived. Jeff Dills is a ghostly presence in this murder trial. After all, he placed Kimberly at the scene of the murder 45 minutes before she called 911. Listen as he tells police he was sure about the time. I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. How could he be so sure his clocks were accurate? Could he have been lying? With so much riding on his timeline, I wanted to find out as much as I could about Jeff Dills. So I started with the interviews he had with police to see what he revealed about himself. For starters, it's clear Jeff Dills was concerned he could be a suspect in this murder. And in this voluntary interview with police two days after Ozzy was killed, his fears were confirmed. I'll be honest with you, you were a suspect. 
That's what I figure. I said, how come uh, I'm not to Later, in the same interview. When you're dealing with a murder investigation, I you understand tell that. the whole truth. I hear you. So and it puts it down your mind. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. If it comes back that you're withholding any information that can uh, indict somebody or yeah. find them prosecute, yeah. uh, to prosecute them. I understand um, completely. You, I know you, could be held you could be held criminally liable. Or as an accomplice. I as an accomplice. So your exposure is... You have a great deal of exposure. Could Jeff Dills have been worried that he could be implicated in the murder if he told police he dropped Kimberly off moments before she walked through her front door? Would he have felt more safe by creating a timeline to put him back at his house well before Kimberly placed the 911 call? I wondered if Jeff shared his private thoughts with those he was closest to. So now, 15 years after the murder, I set out to find them. If anyone knew what was on Jeff Dill's mind when he spoke to police, it would probably be Bill and Nancy Devlin. The older couple from Corona were riding with Jeff, Kim, and Ozzy on the day of the murder, and Jeff referred to the Devlins as his mom and dad. I couldn't find a current address for Bill, but I had a promising lead on his wife, Nancy. Her address came back to a home in San Bernardino. I knocked on the door at least two or three times and a gray-haired woman opened it just a crack and I could see a little boy about seven or eight years old kind of peering at me from behind her. I told her I was trying to find Nancy Devlin. Well, she said right away, I am Nancy Devlin. But then before I had a chance to ask her anything, she said, look, I know you're here about an old case and I don't have anything to say to you. I asked her if she knew Jeff Dills. Well, she said yes, but she said she didn't know anything about what happened and asked me to leave. So I asked her about her husband, Bill. She said she divorced him years ago and he moved to Arizona. She would not tell me how to get a hold of him and then she shut the door. You know, I must say I thought it was odd that she seemed to know why I wanted to talk to her before I had a chance to even say why I was there. I suppose it goes without saying that she refused to let me record the conversation. Jeff Dills had another friend who was riding with him on the day of the murder, a patent attorney named Steve Lott. He eventually returned my calls, but said he would not be able to meet me face to face, but he did agree to a telephone interview. Perfect. So we are recording now, Steve, okay? Okay. Tell me about Jeff Dills. What was he like? Just describe him to me. Jeff, mm -hmm. um, he liked women. <laughs> He's a big guy, you know, and um, just he sang a lot at karaoke. He's a pretty good singer. Steve Lott told me he got a call from Dill soon after the murder. He, he was um, telling me, you know, the police want to talk to me and stuff. And he asked if, if he needs a, he asked me if he needs an attorney. And I said, mm -hmm. you didn't do anything. You don't need an attorney. He goes, yeah, that's what I thought. And, do you mm -hmm. think it's possible that he could have been mistaken as to what the time actually was? I doubt it. Um, there's certain things he's pretty meticulous about, and, and time was one of them. Um, I just, if he didn't know, he would have just said, I don't know. Do you think Kimberly Long is capable of murder, and do you think she's responsible for Ozzy's death? I think so. I would say I would lean towards that.
Another person I really wanted to find is Patricia Green. She's the woman who was on the back of Jeff Dill's motorcycle during the accident, the woman who survived. I found at least 10 women with the name Patricia Green who lived in the area. I narrowed them down to two thanks to their ages. The first said she did not know Jeff Dills and had never been in a motorcycle accident. Anyone home? I left my business card in the door of the second Patricia Green and her daughter gave me a call. Well, my mother's name is Patricia Green. Um, if you give me a minute, I can double check with her. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Mom, um, was you on a motorcycle with Jeffrey Dill? No, I was not. I was not on a motorcycle with Jeffrey Dill. That was my mother speaking, Randy. There you go. I really appreciate you taking the time to call me back. I'm still looking for her. I also want to tell you about a phone conversation Jeff Dills had before he died. It began with a voice message Jeff left on Kimberly's cell phone the day she was arrested. I heard him say, Kimberly, give me a call. I need to talk to you right away. Give me a call. That's Kimberly's aunt, Janet Baird. She says Kimberly asked her to return the call to see what Jeff wanted. And he did answer, and I identified myself as her aunt. And he didn't really want to talk to me, but I had him on the phone, and I said, Jeff, what, uh, you called her, why did you call her? You know, what did you want to tell her? And he said, you know, everything I've had to say, I've already said to them. You know, it was either her or me. You know, they, they, they made me say what I said. Uh, you know, they, they were out to get somebody. If it wasn't her, it was going to be me. What would Jeff Dill say about this phone call? Well, here's what he told Detective Tom Weeks when police asked him about exactly what Kimberly's aunt had to say. I just received a phone call on my cell phone from uh, a lady, sounded like an older lady. She identified herself as Kimberly's aunt. She was concerned about a message that she had listened to on Kimberly's voicemail that Kimberly apparently let her listen to, and she was calling me to get information about why I had called. Dills goes on to tell the detectives he told Kimberly's aunt what police wanted him to say that he was calling to find out what Kimberly had told police. Right, and what else did she say? Um, she says, well, she said that she was arrested, and the reason that, that the cops arrested her is because you were adamant about the time that you had dropped her off, which puts her in the house for an hour while he was still alive and all these other things. And I said, you know, I really don't think I should be talking to you about this, ma'am. <laughs> okay, no problem. And then she said goodbye and hung up. I went back to Janet Baird's house and played the call between police and Dills for her. And you left your house at about 1.10 to go That is absolutely fascinating. I, I never once asked him about the time. That was never part of the conversation. Janet Baird remembers the call differently. She says Jeff Dills kept repeating the same thing. It was either me or her. He kept going into that in one form or another. Yeah. And so that stuck in my head, but, you know, and I'm going, well, I don't understand. Remember, Jeff Dills told police he dropped Kimberly off about 45 minutes before she called 911, giving her enough time to commit the murder. His testimony was so important, the judge said he would have dismissed the case without it. And Dills died before he could testify at the trial, but the jury heard what he had to say when his testimony from a previous hearing was read to them in open court. 
trial began just before Christmas in 2005, and the only way to really understand what happened is to get into the mind of the jury. Arnie, Randy Page. Hi, Randy. Well, welcome to Riverside. Come on in. <laughs> Thank you. That's Arnie White. He's one of the 12 jurors who convicted Kimberly Long. I sat down at his kitchen table, eager to learn about the trial through the jury's eyes. Looking back now, what stands out? Well, what stood out at the time was that I, I felt we made the decision based on the information we were given, but that the picture that we were given to decide was not complete. It's like an out-of-focus picture. An out-of-focus picture because he said something was missing, something the jury needed to know, and it's been bothering him all these years. He went on to say that the entire case was based on Jeff Dill's timeline. The prosecutor's case hung only on the timeline. They didn't offer any evidence on, you know, with regard to murder weapon, uh, really the motive was even thin. I mean, just an argument in a bar, and you're gonna kill your boyfriend. Without that, there would be no case at all. Other, you have a body, and you know where it happened, but outside of that, you don't have anything without the timeline, and without Jeff. Arnie told me from the beginning of their deliberations, all of the other jurors wanted to convict Kimberly. When the jury entered the uh, jury deliberation room, um, we took a quick snap count uh, to determine where everybody was at. And the initial uh, uh, vote was 11 to 1 in favor of conviction. I was that holdout juror. He says he was persuaded to go along with the other jurors and convict Kimberly because a neighbor seemed to back up Jeff Dill's timeline. On December 27, 2005, Arnie White and 11 other jurors filed into the courtroom after about one hour of deliberation. Kimberly's mother Darlene describes the moment when the foreman stood and said, We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Kimberly Louise Long guilty of murder in the second degree. I heard somebody yell out, but it wasn't me. It was just unbelievable. I think I looked at Roger and I'm looking around the room and I'm going, what did I just hear? It just can't be true. Nothing ever linked her. I know that. Darlene says she and her husband were allowed to stay in the courtroom after everyone else left. I got to hug her and it was horrible. Now you feel really helpless. Now who's going to help? Now what do we do? Darlene says she will never forget the sound of the deputies putting on the handcuffs and the shackles. That sound, still today, if I hear anything that kind of sounds like it. The sound of the chain? Yes, yes, it, it's horrible. There were two alternate jurors who sat through the entire trial, and I wondered what they thought about the verdict. Would they have found her guilty too? One's name is David Holloway. You have any idea how many David Holloways there are in Southern California? Boy, there are a lot more than I ever imagined. And I knocked on a lot of doors and I came up empty. But on a warm Friday evening in June, I decided to follow a hunch. I found a man named David Holloway way out in the Temecula Valley. That's a community known for its wineries and Indian reservations about an hour southeast of Corona, where the murder took place. 
I decided to give it a shot. As I drove by the address, I saw a couple of older guys sitting on a couch out in the driveway with cocktails in their hands and a hot Santa Ana wind was blowing. It was just after sunset. I walked up to them and told them I was looking for David Holloway, a juror on a murder trial that happened a long time ago. The two of them looked at each other and they laughed and I knew I found the right guy. Do you remember much about the trial? I remember a lot about the trial. David Holloway is a tall, gray-haired contractor who was speaking slowly and deliberately at the tail end of this Friday cocktail hour. And when I heard it was guilty, I was sort of blown away. I was just so dumbfounded that this jury could find this woman guilty with the evidence that was presented. The other two cars are still here. Hello, anybody home? When I knocked on the door where the other alternate juror lived, his name's Richard Van Leer, there was nobody home, so I left my business card. Well, a few days later, he called, and he said his daughter was now living in the house. He moved out of the area, but he agreed to come back and meet with me because he wanted to share his reaction to the guilty verdict. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was, what went through my mind was, where were these people at? Were they listening? Were they taking notes? I just couldn't believe they came to a decision like that, that she was guilty, because there was no evidence. Richard Van Leer said during the trial, many of the jurors appeared to be distracted and upset about having to serve over the holidays. When they were deliberating, it was right before Christmas, and all they kept talking about was, they, had, they were so busy during that time of year and they had to go Christmas shopping and they had to do this and some of them had to travel and that's all they were concerned about was getting this over so they could get Christmas and New Year's over with. And I couldn't believe that they were talking about that and yet someone's life is in their hands whether they go to prison or not. They, they thought more of Christmas than they did this, this case. They couldn't set things aside. They just wanted to get it over with and then get through the holidays. David Holloway puts it this way. They were only focused on what am I doing for Christmas dinner? Both of these alternate jurors told me if they had been on the jury, they would have held out for a not guilty verdict. I can guarantee you if I was in that jury, I would have convinced every single one of them. You were that sure? I was that sure. I would have stuck it out till the end because it was totally unjust. She didn't do it. Just before Judge Patrick Major sentenced Kimberly Long to 15 years to life in prison, he made a statement that stunned people in the courtroom, including Kimberly's mother. He said, had she come before me and not a jury, I would have found her not guilty. Then he went on to say, I would have found that the evidence was insufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That is my trial court decision in this case. Obviously, it was not a court trial. It was a jury trial. So Judge Majors let the jury's guilty verdict stand. And I knew right there, he knows she's innocent. I just knew it in my heart. I just knew it. He's going to be one of our little angels, and he's going to see it, and he's going to fix it, and he's going to get her out. Judge Patrick Majors would come to be one of Kimberly Long's little angels. 
He allowed her to stay out of jail while her conviction was appealed, but he would not, as Darlene Long hoped, fix it and get her out. Kimberly would go on to spend seven years in prison for the murder of Ozzie Condi. Kimberly Long agreed to speak to me on camera while she was still in prison back in 2015, but the State Department of Corrections wouldn't let us bring our camera inside. So I interviewed her with the help of a prison telephone. What do you want people to know about your case? That I'm factually innocent. That if you were to sit down and actually look at my case, that there's nothing that points to me killing Ozzy. I'm actually factually innocent. And that's what I want people to know. And that this can happen to anybody. This is one of those classic cases where the person who finds the dead person ends up becoming a suspect. That's the director of the California Innocence Project, Justin Brooks. I spoke to him back in 2015 outside of the prison. Her case was paper thin when it went to trial, and now when you consider what we know since then, it's absolutely a certainty that she's innocent. Justin Brooks is talking about evidence his legal team found that was never shown to the jury. A cigarette butt found in an ashtray near Ozzy's body with an unknown man's DNA on it. Medical experts who would testify Ozzy was killed long before 1.30 in the morning based on the condition of his body. More on that in a later episode. But the most explosive evidence came from beyond the grave. What, what was she wearing? She was wearing um, a black t-shirt that had some designs on thinking biker or rock and roll stuff or something. That's the prosecution's star witness, Jeff Dills, talking to police before he died. This interview was conducted two days after the murder. He's describing the clothes Kimberly was wearing when he dropped her off at her house moments before she walked through the front door. What I remember was like little rings, chain, like a chain that looked like a chain that was like part of the shirt. And she had a purse that had little rings that matched that. And she was wearing blue jeans, kind of low rider blue jeans. And um, I think she had a black belt on. This police interview was discovered by the Innocence Project's lead yeah. attorney on the case, Alyssa Birkel. She says she found it deep in the case files, but it didn't really hit her until she went down to the Corona Police Department and started going through the boxes of evidence. Police opened a box and started pulling out the clothes one article at a time. When that shirt came out, I just thought, wow, that's the shirt. That's the shirt that he's talking about. Um, there's probably no other shirt on the planet that looks like that shirt. So you knew you had something important? Yeah, I knew, I knew at that point we had something really important. So why is this so important? Remember, the crime scene had a fine mist of blood covering the walls in a circle around Ozzy's body. The clothes Jeff Dills described Kimberly was wearing when he dropped her off were the same clothes she was wearing when deputies arrived. And detectives took those clothes and they tested them, and there was not a trace of blood on any of them. So how could she beat Ozzy to death, splattering blood all over the walls, but not get any blood on her clothes? The prosecution convinced the jury she must have changed those clothes. But if Jeff Dills is right, she couldn't have. I honestly started getting kind of angry about the entire thing. Like, I can't believe that the prosecutor, for one, would argue that she changed her clothes. And so I did raise a claim of prosecutorial misconduct on that, and unfortunately it didn't go anywhere. But um, it is significant because if she doesn't change clothes 
and you have a really bloody crime scene with a blood spatter on every single wall, even like a mist of blood spatter, and there's nothing on her, I just can't get over that. And I think what Judge Majors one time said, you know, if she changed her clothes, she did it. If she didn't change her clothes, she didn't. So why didn't Kimberly's original attorney, a public defender named Eric Keene, try to bring the evidence about Kimberly's clothes into the trial? I'd love to ask him, but he's not returning my calls. Here's what Kimberly's new attorney, Alyssa Birkel, thinks happened. I think it was overlooked by the defense. I think, you know, I, I kind of feel bad for this defense attorney because he was assigned, I think, two death penalty cases at the time. He had other murder cases going on. Just the, the workload was pretty insane for him. Um, and I think it just slipped by. I mean, these case files and murder cases are huge. They're massive. And I think it just slipped through the cracks. So here is the Sherlock Holmesian riddle that has ripped a hole through the prosecution's case. How could Kimberly Long beat Ozzy Condi to death without getting any blood on her? I've put that question to a lot of people in the three years I've been working on this case, and most say it couldn't be done. But here's one theory. Jeff Dill's friend Steve Lott told me maybe Kim walked through the door, took her clothes off, beat Ozzy to death, jumped in the hot tub they had in their backyard, washed all of the blood off, put the clothes she'd been wearing all night back on, and then called 911. I was thinking maybe she got in the jacuzzi, wiped it off, whatever, paper towels, whatever, to, you know, if, she, if, if that's what happened, you know, and then she put her clothes on when she went outside, let's say. Um, I don't know. I wasn't there. We could all speculate. People aren't supposed to be convicted on speculation. So how would police and the DA describe what happened, given Dill's description of the clothes Kimberly was wearing? Well, I can't tell you because the police and the DA won't talk to me. They say their policy is not to comment on any case that's still making its way through the courts. I'm hoping they will talk to me once all of the appeals have been exhausted, and when they do, I will give you an update. But in the meantime, I scoured the testimony and prosecution filings in this case, and I can't find any prosecution theories that account for Dill's statement, with one exception. In 2016, during a hearing on Kimberly's claim she was wrongly convicted, Assistant District Attorney Alan Tate said, quote, I'm going to tell you right now it's the people's position that she never changed her clothing. So how do members of Ozzy Condi's family feel about all of this? I've done my best to speak to them, but so far they have not returned any of my calls. Hi, Ashley, Randy Page calling. Uh, could you do me a favor and give me a call when you get them? This message is for Yolanda. Uh, my name is Randy Page. I'm a reporter with you. Hi, John, Randy Page. So this has got to be at least my fifth voicemail message. Please give me a call back when you get this message. It's extremely important to me that your family have a voice in this story, and I, I really need to talk to you. I've, I've I tried. did speak to Ozzy's brother, John, over the phone, and he said the family believes Kimberly Long is guilty. He said, you know, if you come home and you find somebody you deeply love bloody on the couch, would you, and I'm quoting him now, run up and grab them? Or would you step back and worry about blood getting on you? Ozzy's brother went on to tell me at this point he wants his mom to have closure. And if Kimberly didn't do it, he said, he believes she knows what happened. Clearly, the 12 jurors believed Kimberly was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But if Dill's statement to police about Kimberly's clothing had been shown to the jury, would it have changed their minds? 
Remember, Arnie White was one of those 12 jurors. I was eager to show him the evidence he never saw to see if it would have made a difference in his decision to find her guilty. But first, I wanted to get an idea if he had any unanswered questions about the evidence in the case. I wasn't prepared for his answer. Uh, there were some facts that I felt should have been discussed, some glaring pieces of evidence in my mind. I felt that there was some information that would have assisted us a great deal that just never came in. The information Arnie White wanted is an explanation about the clothes Kimberly was wearing that night. Was there any blood on them? Do you think it would have been possible for the killer to commit the murder and to not have any blood on their clothes? I don't think so. And the, uh, based on the forensics testimony that there was one of the photos that they showed us was cast off blood behind the couch on the wall with a silhouette of somebody standing behind, uh, is Condi, was that his name? The, the yes, Ozzy Condi. Yeah. Uh, it, it appeared that there was a silhouette of somebody, presumably the killer, standing behind him between the back of the couch and the wall. If that's the case, um, it could not have been her if she had those clothes on. Arnie White says the jury foreman convinced him to stop thinking about the clothes she was wearing because his questions were not answered during the trial. And the jury foreman, quite rightly, um, said, look, we are, we are bound to decide based on the evidence that's given to us, based on the rules the judge laid out for us, and we can't consider evidence that we didn't get. So your question after all these years is what about the clothes she was wearing, right? Well, it, it, yes. I'm going to answer your question for you. Okay. I want you to hear and see it. I pulled out my laptop, pulled up the Dills police interview, and placed three 8x10 glossy photographs on his kitchen table, photos of the clothes Kimberly was wearing when deputies arrived on the night of the murder. Okay. Here we go. What was she wearing? She was wearing... Um a black t-shirt that had some designs on thinking biker or rock and roll stuff or something. What I remember was like little rings, chain, like a chain that looked like a chain that was like part of the shirt. Arnie White watched the video carefully. Then he glanced at the photo of each article of clothing as Dills was describing it. And um, I think she had a black belt on. I then showed him the Department of Justice document showing the lab results. The report is saying that there was no blood on any of these clothes. On her clothing. So the question you've carried for all these years is, what about the, the clothing? clothing. Yeah, what about the clothing? Is. And here it is. Here it is. What's your reaction? Uh, I'm going to say, based on the clothing, she couldn't have done it. So then, as a juror, you feel at a loss because... It's the secret everybody knew, but the jurors, the defense knew, That's the prosecution I, knew, the police knew, and it's critical evidence, but you didn't know what it was. This is, this is a very important piece of evidence. And it was on my mind when we walked into the deliberation room. It was on my mind throughout the entire trial. I thought at some point, this defense attorney is going to somehow bring this in. Never did. You couldn't stand behind Ozzy and beat him to death with a axe handle or a golf club and not have blood all over you. 
You know, I, I mean, you couldn't do it. And this was the piece that I wanted. If, if the jury saw the video of Jeff Dills that I just showed you, yes. the photographs of the clothes that he described, and the test results that show no blood, do you believe the jury would have come to a different verdict? Absolutely. No doubt in your mind? No doubt. No doubt. Arnie White told me the foreman was the most influential member of the jury. He convinced Arnie, along with some of the other jurors who had some doubts, to find Kimberly guilty based on the evidence that was presented at the trial. So what would this foreman think of the evidence the jury never saw? I think we made the right decision based on the evidence we were given. That's the jury's foreman, Stephen Roberge. He describes himself as a normal guy, a musician, a producer, a Buddhist in his 50s. His day job is industrial sales. He agreed to meet me at a park in Corona to talk about the case. At first, he didn't want me to reveal his name, but he later changed his mind about that. Here's the first question I asked him. Do you believe the killer could have committed this murder without getting blood on their clothes? No, absolutely not. And why is that? Because the amount of blood that was at the, at the scene was overwhelming, and it was in every direction, and uh, there's no way. Then I showed him the Jeff Dills police interview and the photos of the clothes Kimberly was wearing that night. What I remember was like little rings, chain, like a chain that looked like a chain that was like part of the shirt. As foreman of this jury, if you'd seen this evidence, what would have been your verdict? Uh, not guilty. No question. No question. You believe the jury would have found her not guilty? I would have said not guilty, and I would have held that unless somebody could have rationally explained to me, you know, why that uh, thinking was incorrect. And I would challenge anybody else that thought differently, you know, why they thought she could have possibly murdered Ozzy and not have any blood on her. And tell me why you think this evidence about the clothing she was wearing is so important. Because it proves that she was not the one that actually killed Ozzy. No question. No question at all. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not an idiot. You know, there's just no way. There's no way. When I told Kimberly's attorney, Alyssa Bierkel, that two of the jurors who convicted Kimberly said they would have found her not guilty if they'd seen the evidence Alyssa found, I thought she would be happy about it, but instead, she fell apart. Sorry. Okay. These are the people who decided her life, you know, and, and they didn't get the whole picture, and it's, we're sending someone to prison forever who wouldn't have gone to prison if this evidence was in front of them to begin with. And it's just like, we've been doing this case for what, almost, 10 years now and that's 10 years of my life it's you know however many of Kim's there's a ton that and all this work and the and the fighting and the and the paperwork and the going to court repeatedly and all these things for for nothing like nobody it seems to me like the people who should care just aren't they just aren't caring about it and the people who had the ability to keep her out of prison in the first place they just they have no power now they can't take back what they did at the time. The California Innocence Project appealed Kimberly's conviction, and the state Supreme Court sent the case back to Judge Patrick Majors for another look. 
Again, here's Innocence Project Director Justin Brooks. I've looked at thousands of homicide cases, and in most of them, when I look at them, I believe either the person is guilty or there's nothing really to do about it. And this is one of those rare cases that I looked at and said, we got to get involved. Um, we got to get this conviction reversed. Kim is just an all-American, outdoors person. She's a mom. She was a nurse. She is, you know, a representation of America. Her family, our suburban American family. When you look at Kim and you look at her family, you realize anybody can be wrongfully convicted in America. There's absolutely no physical evidence that links her to this crime. There's no confession that links her to this crime. There's no witness that links her to this crime. This case is purely based on the circumstance of her coming home, finding her boyfriend beaten to death, and being on the scene. And that's tragic, because every time somebody dies or is killed, somebody's going to find that person. And it's often that person who finds the dead person who ends up being a suspect, simply because you can put them on the scene. For Judge Majors, the police interview with Jeff Dills about Kimberly's clothes that the jury never saw was, in his words, a pivotal issue in the case. He laid it all out in open court when he said this. If petitioner did not change her clothes, there is a reasonable inference that from the evidence that she is not the killer. The judge went on to say, Considering all the evidence, the court finds it highly unlikely that the petitioner committed the crime. And with that, after Kimberly Long had spent seven years in prison, Judge Patrick Majors set her free. The judgment of conviction is vacated. I feel um, happy, elated, relieved. Um, just a lot of emotions right now. I'm extremely happy. <laughs> But it's not over yet, not by a long shot. Coming up in our next episode. This is KCAL 9 News at 8. She was exonerated nearly two years ago, but Kimberly Long may be heading back to prison because of a... And get ready for a real bombshell. A convicted killer says he knows who really killed Ozzy and why. Here's a hint. It involves bikers, an axe handle, and a confrontation that got out of hand. What does Kimberly Long think about this prison snitch? This person knew a couple things that nobody would have known, and it bothers me. One of the jurors who convicted her is calling for an investigation. This is important information. That's a more plausible story than Kim magically didn't have blood all over her. We brought the information to the Corona Police Department. And working on this story involves a really old homicide that happened here, and we developed some new information I wanted to share with the Corona PD. Flaw Justice is produced by Randy Page and edited by Richard Alvarez, associate producer B.J. Dahl. If you haven't done so already, be sure and subscribe to this podcast. When we release new episodes, you'll be the first to know. And if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. If you have any information on this case, I would love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me directly through our website, flawedjustice.com. 
Also on the website, you can watch the interviews and police interrogations, look at crime scene photos, and you can see television news stories I produced on the Kimberly Long case, and much more. We will also have links you can go to if you'd like to get involved, either to support Kimberly or the police and prosecutors, or just stop by and share your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. Again, that's flawedjustice.com. If you would like to learn more about Kimberly Long's case and other Innocence Project cases, you can go to the California Innocence Project's website, and it's easy to remember, californiainnocenceproject.org. Original theme and music composed and performed by Randy Page, with additional contributions by Megatrax. Special thanks to the folks at CBS in Los Angeles, including President and General Manager Steve Malden, Vice President and News Director Tara Feinstone, Director of Digital Content B.J. Dahl, Assistant News Director Jennifer Pierce, Managing Editor Paul Button, and Producer Jerry Constant. Flawed Justice is a production of CBS Los Angeles and KCBS-TV. Thanks for listening.